Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powles, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined today by my colleague, Solicitor Courtney West. Courtney, how are you going? I'm good, Brian. Just Courtney today, just the two of us. Um, last podcast, we talked about managing underperforming employees. Um, these next two podcasts, this is going to be the first of a, of a two-parter on, on, a, on another issue that's related, but but completely different, which is managing absent employees. The reason we're doing it in two parts is that, first of all, today, I wanted to talk about managing personal leave, which is really just managing uh, short-term or uh, sporadic absences from work and, and how they can be best be managed so that the impact on the business can be as minimal as possible, while obviously protecting employees' rights. Next week, we're going to talk about something, you know, a little bit related, but a little bit more more serious, and that's when uh, the, the absences are no longer short-term or sporadic, but where you have long-term absences from work on the basis of illness or injury and, and really what's the next stage. But today, we're just going to talk about stage one, and that's that's really just managing these short-term absences and managing personal leave within, within the business. We're also going to do uh, the good the bad, the ugly, our, our, our regular current affairs segment. We didn't watch a movie this week. Businesses report that really one of the biggest costs of managing their business can be the cost of personal leave. Now, it's really important to acknowledge whenever we discuss this, that personal leave, um, which is provided in the National Employment Standards for all full-time and, and part-time em- employees, but more generally than that, which is the right to be absent from work, whether or not that's paid or unpaid under the um, for, for reasons of, of illness or carer's responsibility, those things are protected as workplace rights. And, and, and as a starting point, it's very, very, very important for us to say that that, that is a cost of doing business and it's a, um, it's, a, it's a right of all employees to be absent for illness. Having said that, um, the elephant in the room, obviously, is that this can be an entitlement that's misused um, it's treated as an accrued entitlement. It's, as, it's accrued as a sort of secondary annual leave balance by some employees. On the other side, you know, there's many employees that go through their entire careers with using very minimal personal leave. I guess the first question in terms of managing personal leave to ensure that it's been correctly taken is identifying the evidentiary requirements. And there are requirements um, if people decide to take personal leave. Now, the Fair Work Act sets out evidentiary requirements and in both section 97 and and, and 107 it provides that an employer may require evidence that would satisfy a reasonable person that an employee is unfit to carry out their duties now modern awards enterprise agreements in some instances workplace policies may specify additional requirements the specific requirements whether that be a medical certificate or a statutory declaration but the fundamental test in the Fair Work Act is just what would satisfy a reasonable person. And and again, this test of reasonableness, which seems to every every issue we raise on the podcast seems to boil down to this reasonable person test. The question we often get from clients is, when can you ask for more? When can you ask for more than that? And, and, and that can be a, a difficult question. Again, what would satisfy a reasonable person? Now, there's a few factors that I think employers should bear in mind when determining what information may be sought. Firstly, the evidence that has been provided is, is, is key number one. The length of service um, and the record of 
of absence, record of illness, um, where there's been someone that has had a, a, a significant history of being absent, you know, quite clearly then the reasonable person may require um, more robust evidence of that absence. Um, on the flip side, if you've got someone that's been, you know, several years and then they take a, a sick day, um, demanding a medical certificate on the basis of one sick day may be considered unreasonable. Um, whether a time frame for work has been, for, for return to work has been provided, has the employee given any information about when they're going to be back? Have they given any information about the nature of the, the nature of the illness? Are there any implications on the health and safety, including concerns that the injury or illness might be work-related or that work may be an exacerbating factor or if there's a, a health and safety concern? Remembering, of course, that we all have... Um, an obligation under the work health and safety legislation to do whatever's reasonably practicable to pre to prevent um, injury or illness or, or to protect the safety of employees. So that's a, a balancing act there. Um, and, and also in some cases, uh, the potential impact of the absence on, on business considerations such as rosters, training, etc., cetera, um, operational concerns, that can be a factor sometimes in, in, how, in what is reasonable in terms of evidence that's been required. I'm just going to note that under the um, Australian Medical Association's guidelines for medical practitioners on certifying illness, the doctors are not required to provide a diagnosis or any medical information. And most employers will be, will be familiar with that standard line um, that you know, an, an employee is unfit for work um, due to a personal illness or you know, for medical reasons. It is sufficient as a starting point from the medical guidelines to merely say that, a, that an employee is unfit to attend work for a specific period. Now, when is it that employers can ask for more information? Um, generally speaking, as a, a, as a guideline, you can absolutely ask an employee's treating doctor to provide more information only with the employee's consent. So that's generally the starting point that if you want more information specifically, then the employee will have to consent to providing that. If you do require more information and the consent is not given, then there is some options sometimes for uh, an employee to be directed to attend an independent medical examination. As we talk about in the podcast a lot, any direction given to an employee must be followed as, as an incident of that employee's contract of employment, so long as that direction is lawful and reasonable. And whether or not a direction to attend an independent medical examination, um, being whether or not that's lawful and reasonable, is probably something we're going to address next week when we talk about those longer-term illnesses, because generally speaking, on short-term illnesses, that's not the case. But the short answer is yes. In some circumstances, that's, that's a reasonable direction. I guess the next question, I'm going to get Corley to speak on this a little bit, is um, what if, and this is the big question we get for clients, what if it's suspected that the employee is not really sick? And we're all, we're all adults here with sickies do exist. They're a real thing. They're a part of Australian culture. So what happens if you suspect the employee is not really sick? What's the, what's the options available, Courtney? Okay. So it's really important before we get into that, that employers, you know, are really mindful of how they're going to handle this situation. Um, take a step back and assess it. So if they suspect that an employee is not 
genuinely injured or unwell, they should first contact the employee directly to inquire about their injury or illness, like you said before, um, and ask their consent to provide more information. And if they haven't already provided a medical certificate, ask for one. And then if that medical certificate still does not provide sufficient information and that wouldn't satisfy the reasonable person test, you can then ask for them to consent for their doctor to give you more information. You can ask the doctor more specific questions related to their injury, their illness and the role. So then if in that case the employee gives you that information, great. If they don't, and you can then determine whether it would be appropriate to consider them for an independent medical assessment, which is when they will go and get an opinion from a third party. You'll write a letter of instruction to the doctor setting out the role, the concerns, the information you need, and that will, in most circumstances, be considered a lawful and reasonable direction, and they will, as you said before, Brian, be required to to comply with that. How about if the employee is not really sick? Is this something that the employer can take disciplinary action if if an employee is, you know, taking a sickie and you have evidence that that's the case? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a really, it's a really good example of this in a case that was Anderson and the Crown. So yeah, it's an old the, one, but a good one. You yeah. know, yeah, I think yeah. we discussed it very early when I started. Um, the interesting case, the interesting thing about Anderson and, and Crown Melbourne, yeah. the, the the commission itself did say that the circumstances were highly unusual, um, but in those circumstances, mm. a certificate was issued on the basis that someone you know missing a, a football match um, was going to you know have emotionally bad consequences for the person, um, despite the certificate the employer maintained that a reasonable person would not have been satisfied that the employee was actually unfit to attend work and the Fair Work Commission agreed. So there's an example where a medical certificate was given, but it wasn't satisfactory evidence. And as such, a a dismissal was determined to be fair, which is an unusual case, but it's one that that, that we often talk about when it comes to to, um, medical certificates. Um, there was, there was a similar case, uh, a more recent case that I found, um, well, Jessica found it, shout out to Jessica in preparation for this podcast, um, Blues are in Monash University. So the employee was having dental procedures in Bali and had taken annual leave and upon returning had tried to convert some of that annual leave to personal leave due to the the dental work she was having done and I, I can't really tell you why but she'd attended this medical practice over the years and she originally tried to convert her leave the employer said no the year later when she went back I'm assuming for a, a checkup she provided an updated medical certificate and they accepted that and then she sent than one for the the period 12 months ago. But what the employer noticed was that both medical certificates contained the same typo. 
which made them suspicious, oh, which then yeah. and think that she had perhaps forged the medical certificate from that first instance of leave. Um, there was a number of other reasons that led them to be suspicious of that, and they ultimately dismissed her from her employment. And the Fair Work Commission, upon reviewing all the certificates, said, yeah, that's actually a valid concern. They appear to be fraudulent, and dismissal in that circumstance was reasonable. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Her, um, unfair dismissal application was was rejected yeah yeah and look i think um and there's another example Dakota. i think we mentioned in the newsletter Dakota and westbank banking corporation as well where it, it was determined that the medical certificate was was false and in those circumstances absolutely that's going to be a disciplinary circumstance but i, but I think i i suppose mm-hmm. what it comes down to is failure to provide evidence when requested can be disciplinary circumstances um and and obviously uh, any attempt to sort of fraudulently provide evidence is is, is going to be a disciplinary consequences too and being honest the statutory declaration which i think is a is, a, is an old favorite for a lot of employees being untruthful on a statutory declaration is a, is a criminal offense so obviously that also yeah. is going to be a, a valid reason for dismissal that it comes down to but i think i, I guess yeah the, the next point really is there is some uh, you know, th- these are the high watermarks. I mean, I think what most employers want to know is is what can they do to um, actually sort of prevent the misuse of personal leave on a more practical level without necessarily talking about or, or sacking people, etc. So uh, th- there's a couple of things we always advise and, s- and some measures. Um, and this is partly as well because the fact that, you know, and again, no respect, disrespect to doctors, but... Um, it is not hard to get a medical certificate, um, particularly when you're talking about um, for psychological reasons or, or work stress reasons and, and, and those types of things. A, a doctor will give a medical certificate to most people if they say, I'm, I'm not handling work, I, don't, I can't go. So um, there is sometimes reasons to, to look behind that. I think, first of all, it's, it's important to, to, to require an employee to actually phone and speak to their manager um, when they're sick and need to take a day off work. Now, I know we're moving away from the, the phone call age. Everything is by electronic message. But uh, a phone call, um, as opposed to a text message or email, can sometimes lower the chances of, um, of someone, you know, t- taking, chucking a sickie. I think that, that I think it's harder to... To make a phone call and actually say, and if you are sick, then then, then that's the sort of level of, I, I think it's it's the least you can do is make a phone call rather than an electronic message. Um, consider what your requirements in terms of medical certificates are quite carefully um, and try and apply them as a starting point consistently across the workforce. Do you require a medical certificate after the second day absence? Um, alternatively, do you require specifically medical evidence for one day absences on those talk, those occasions that I talk about? We've got a couple of them coming up, I think, with Anzac Day. Um, when Australia Day is on either a Tuesday or a Thursday, that will generally cause the Monday or the Friday to be popular days. Do you impose special evidential requirements for those days? And, and as I indicated before, I believe that would be reasonable. Also, specific employees that have a bad absenteeism record, are there additional requirements that, that, that are imposed on, on those employees? I think having a comprehensive policy in place 
addressing all of these issues, addressing all of the procedures that need to be followed. Um, another thing, and this is really important, is is try and ascertain the reason. If there is someone that is um, struggling to attend and is taking you know ex excessive amounts of personal leave, look behind that too. It's not automatically a disciplinary thing. Is there something going on behind the scenes? Is there some issue with their colleagues? Is there some personal issue with the employee? Often, you know, a respectful conversation um, and getting ahead of the issue uh, can be the, the best remedy as opposed to treating it straight away as disciplinary. Who knows what's happening behind the scenes and, and what sort of assistance or, or what kind of tweak might be um, all that's required to fix that situation, if it is more of a cultural or a, um, like a workplace culture issue, or if it's a, or if it's a specific personal issue to that employee. And most importantly, monitor it and, um, and, and take action, you know, relatively quickly if something is arising on, on, on individual employees from, from case to case. Um, I think it, uh, the last case I'm going to mention that I think is quite interesting um, and a few years old is CFMEU and Anglo Coal. Um, and this is quite an interesting one because this uh, ended up being a general protection instead of an unfair dismissal, which I thought was quite an interesting part of it. In this case, an employee uh, didn't want to do a shift and asked to not be working on a shift. I think these, I, I don't, I might have the facts slightly wrong, but so forgive me, but. Um, threatened to take a sickie on a certain day. Now, ultimately, the employee was sick on that day and actually did take a sick day. And the following the procedural fairness, there was an investigation, there was, it, was, it was put to them, they had an opportunity to respond. The employee was ultimately dismissed for that reason. Now, they filed an application under Section 340 of the Fair Work Act alleging a contravention, the exercise of a, of a workplace right. Um, and I think alleging Section 351 um, being a, a contravention of, you know, a discriminatory contravention. The employer managed to demonstrate that the reason for the termination was their belief, their mistaken belief, that the employee had been dishonest. Yeah. Um, and as such, they weren't successful at the general protections because even though the employee was actually sick... The it, reason the, for the dismissal. The, the reason for the dismissal was dishonesty. And, and, and it's an interesting fact that, you you know, you can be mistaken or you can... And, and fundamentally, in, as an employer, you can make an unfair decision that's not unlawful under the general protections provisions. Mm. That's a good good example of where that, that particular employee, because he they didn't have a valid reason for dismissal, would have been successful in the unfair dismissal jurisdiction, but wasn't in the general protection. So that's always an, an interesting one. I suppose the key is, you know, overall, and, and you've foreshadowed this already, Courtney, but be cautious. Don't don't jump into these things. Employees have a fundamental right to be off work sick. And if they're full-time and part-time, they have a fundamental right to paid personal leave under the Fair Work Act. And it's very hard, it's very dangerous to, to take adverse action or to, to leap to conclusions that the employee's done the wrong thing in exercising those rights. 
On the flip side, though, and this is really going to be the subject of next week, there are some circumstances where once an employee gets to the point where they absent for so long that there's a genuine concern, they can't perform the inherent requirements of the role, an employer is not required to uh, employ them permanently. They, you know, they, they, there are some some scope for employees ultimately to to be sort of terminated from employment on the grounds they're unable to they're unable to do the work. There's a lot of legal risk. We're going to talk about that next week. That's going to be the subject for next week's pod. There are a lot of legal risks in doing so, and they're worth bearing in mind just for the benefit of this personally pod two, section 352 of the Fair Work Act provides that employees can't be terminated for a temporary absence or illness. The section 351 uh, is a protection against termination for reasons that include a, a, a personal illness. The Disability Discrimination Act, section 340 of the Fair Work Act, and probably most importantly, unfair dismissal. And we're going to discuss all of those risks next week and talk about the process where someone's really absent for a long period of time but otherwise when it comes to just the management of day-to-day personal leave really it's just the tips that we've talked about in this pod and and that's pretty much it unless you've got anything else to add Courtney no I think I think that's it from me yeah okay well that's you know we'll 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 really get into the details a little bit more um more then and we'll we'll leave it till then I think Essie joins us again next week for that one so good bad ugly this week what do you have I have a good, bad and an ugly. I've done my homework <laughs> this week. So, <laughs> so my good is that the federal government has ratified the newest international labour organisation protocol that addresses forced labour. It's the yep. first one we've ratified since 2011. Basically, it just includes obligations to prevent and suppress forced labour and protect victims and provide access to appropriate and effective remedies and penalising perpetrators of forced labour. Um, it's just connected to the ILO Forced Labour Convention, um, which is really just trying to address modern slavery. And it's just good to see us as a very a country with a rich history in employment law and industrial law taking you know, putting our money where our mouth is and, you know, yeah. playing a role on the international stage, I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and even if it's just symbolic, I, I mean, I, I think there's some real, we've talked about this before, there's some real difficulties um, well, with anything related to international law or international Absolutely. standards generally. But there's, there's, so, so, there's a lot of difficulties in yet. And how do you um, conquer a global issue with domestic law, um, yeah. but, but absolutely being proactive and at least being involved and ratifying it, I think is is really important. Uh, yeah, that is a good one. I've got, I've got What's your good? double goods. I've got two. Ooh. I got carried away this week. So first of all, and they're kind of That's related. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, the decision in the um, Fair Work Commission uh, with a five-member bench in relation to uh, constructive dismissal under Section 386. Um, it was a demotion mm-hmm. situation, so uh, an employee's had um, uh, 10% reduction in remuneration uh, following some you know, some performance or disciplinary issues, 
and and the commission was has been asked to assess whether or not that constitutes dismissal. Now, in this case, they've they've said it doesn't. Now, I, I think the number ten percent, twenty percent, fifty percent. These demotion cases are really really interesting and nuanced, and they're they're, they're not a one size fits all approach is not appropriate. You can't really use one factual circumstance as, as precedent for how another one is going to go. And I'm not attempting to do mm. so. So I'm not I'm not commenting on these specific facts, but that it was good to see a five bench five member bench um, have a detailed discussion on on demotion um, and, and the effect of, of, of section three eighty six. I think that's quite an interesting one. But as well as that the 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 commission has also discussed Again, given some fairly detailed commentary, I don't want to go into the details of it, between the interrelationship between contractual repudiation and constructive dismissal under Section 386 of the Act. Yeah. Now, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting area because Section 386, on one level, is a sort of a codification of, of the principles of repudiation. Like any constructive dismissal is generally the same as a repudiation of that contract of employment and that and that repudiation then being accepted by the employee. However, there's been some grey area around the interrelationship between the contract of employment and the broader employment relationship, um, mm. as particularly the employment relationship as managed, if you like, by the Fair Work Act in particular. Now, in these circumstances, because the employee actually stayed on in the new role, that's allowed the commission to really discuss that difference between the employment relationship and that specific employment contract. And, and I think yeah. that's some really useful clarity in there. It's something that's been, been wanting. I haven't had a, a, a really good look at the decision, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, I think it's, it's good that it was there because both those issues are, are things that have required, I think a significant five person, like a significant full bench decision from the commission is very helpful. In a similar way, why I've grouped it together is the is the full federal court um, making a decision on on stoppage of work with the Qantas stand down cases, and this is uh, under appeal from Justice yeah. Flick. Again, I make no commentary on whether or not it was right that the Qantas workers didn't didn't get their money for being stood down, etc. It's it's an interesting decision in the sense that they have upheld the decision, but they have made some commentary around Justice Flick saying that there was a stoppage of work and they've given us some very useful commentary about what is a stoppage of work under Section 524. Now, almost exactly two years ago, I think even longer than two years ago, to be fair, um, or thereabouts, every single client was asking us because COVID was happening and the world was coming to an end and we didn't know what was going to happen. It was pre-JobKeeper and all of those things. What is a, what is a Section 524? stoppage of work because COVID-19 has created factual circumstances that we never anticipated when this uh, section was being drafted. And then the concept of a stoppage of work, which has traditionally been, you know, some flash flood or um, natural disaster causing a factory to, 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 you know, those are the types of things we're talking about, not mm -hmm. just a complete global meltdown and, and there's an interesting finding in the full court along the lines of it was the airlines themselves that decided not to offer those flights. It wasn't a stoppage yeah. of work in the traditional sense. They chose, having said that, 
um, the, the court has made the decision that because it was, you know, due to circumstances that were, you know, monumentally beyond their control, um, Justice Flick's declarations were not were not disturbed. His decisions on on stoppage of work have been, you know, the, the meaning of stoppage of work have, have have had some refinement from the full court there. So I think they were both good decisions. I haven't really explained them. I, I would need longer than a podcast to talk about them, but they're both, I think, very helpful decisions for, for employment lawyers and the, the community generally going forward. I'm impressed that you found two cases for your good, like. You definitely did the homework. Interesting that in the same week we get a, a quite important one from the mm. full bench of the commission and then quite an important one from the full bench of the federal court. So, yeah, just, just so happens. Yeah. <laughs> How about your bad? Okay. So my bad is there was a review of the Australian Human Rights Commission by the Global Alliance of National Human Rights Institutions and they decided not to reissue the commission with top-tier status. So it had, upon conducting a review, um, it found that the, a few of the human rights commissioners that have been appointed um, didn't meet the accreditation requirements and they also raised concerns about funding, noting that in order to operate effectively, the Australian Human Rights Commission, commission needs to be receiving and be guaranteed an adequate level of funding to be able to freely determine and objectively determine its activities. So what does that mean? Why do we care about this? Basically, when the Commission had its A status, it's able to participate in UN in the UN Human Rights Council and to actually attend and speak at UN meetings. If it becomes a lower status, then the Commission can only participate as an observer and it can't actually right. have the floor right. and speak. So we've had one one positive in international law and a bit of a... Yeah, one negative. A bit of a backward yeah. step in another. Um, yeah, that is a bit. So it's just, especially, I feel like a country like us, people probably expect a little bit, a little bit better. Um, yeah. My bad was that the Coles and Woolworths underpayment case or cases because one of the cases is, is being brought by the Fair Work Ombudsman and another one is a class action um, being brought by Adero Law, has been um, set down for hearing by Justice Perham and he's reserved seven weeks to hear the case. So just, um, you know, and, and I understand there's a, a great deal of complexity and there's a, a number of different issues going on there. But as someone that, you know, as, as you know, that we practice quite a lot in, in in modern award and in particularly in underpayment type cases, it seems astonishing that the court would be required for seven weeks for these yeah. two major retailers to um, just simply put right what should be a relatively simple exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the case and I'm not, I, I, I'm not making any sort of commentary. It might have all sorts of complexity and from what I gather, um, there's some complexity around the, the way the class action has been framed and who are members of the, of the group, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I know that's difficult stuff, but it just does seem like an astonishing use of court's time for something that should be quite straightforward. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my bad for this week. <laughs> that is bad. Ugly. Ugly. Okay. This one is quite ugly. So 7-Eleven, I'm not sure if you've 
you've heard of them or maybe seen them around, have to, are set to pay out $100 million after, in response to a class action brought by franchisees yeah. who basically claimed that the business model of 7-Eleven was a lemon and was actually built on the assumption that wage theft would have to occur to make a profit. So the federal court approved, yeah. um, to be more specific, the federal court approved a payout of $98 million in settlement. Um, the chief executive of 7-Eleven has said that we continue to adapt and improve and look forward to providing great products and services in Australia. So it seems like they've taken a bit of responsibility for that. But it's ugly. Yeah. It's really ugly. It is. And it was, you'll be pleased to know that was my ugly too. So you've doubled up on stopping my ugly. It was because it that's is, it's a really ugly was. thing. But it's, it's another whole situation that's been ugly for a very long time. And yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's really something that needed, needed to be addressed. And, and, and I guess that's an interesting way because I think the original 7 Eleven, um, 7 Eleven cases was, was one of the things that led to an impetus in, in, in changes in relation to accessorial liability under the Fair Work Act specific to the, to the franchises, mm -hmm. franchises and, um, and also the serious contravention amendments a few years ago. And, and it is a bit of an issue, I think, and, and I sort of feel, I, I don't know the details of that, but, but often with franchise arrangements, the, the formulas that are set, the business formulas are set by the principal. And the only thing that the franchisee has any real control over is the labour cost. It, yeah. It's 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 not 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 very surprising sometimes that that this is these are some of the things that can occur in that type of business model. And it's interesting that they've managed to demonstrate that that you know through that particular legal avenue. But yeah, it's a ugly way to end it. We didn't look at a movie, so unfortunately, we're just going to have to end it on a very ugly note. It so, is. I think <laughs> next week. <laughs> Next week, we're going to take, we're going to go that next step further and talk about, okay, what do you do when an employee's absence from work is so extracted or the circumstances demonstrate that there is something serious enough for there to be a possibility that the inherent requirements of the role can't be done and, and, and where you need to manage that next stage. And we'll get into the legal risks uh, associated with the adverse action or termination of an injured or sick employee in a little more detail in that podcast um we'll look forward to to seeing you then thanks courtney thanks everyone see ya. Thank you.